Hey there, Bloom Living Podcast listeners. You looking to up the game in your breathing, your body, your physicality? Well, guess what? KinOnline.ca is offering our listeners a special 10% off site-wide. Go to the show notes for the link. Here's what you get. Flow Yoga, Master the Basics with Rachel Dean, and 10 by 10 Morning Transformation with Tim Begley. That's 10% off. You can find it in the show notes. When you get there and you're ready to pay, you just write in Bloom 10 for your discount. Today's podcast is brought to you by Thomas DeShooter Business Success Coaching. Are you ready to experience your business thriving? Or maybe you're already thriving and you want a better system for managing your cash flow. The truth is, you need to be set up to win. And winning is all about the process. Being certified cash flow specialist and profit first professionals, Thomas DeShooter Business Success Coaching will put you on track to win big. Check the show notes to book your free consultation or go to thomasdeshooter.com. Welcome to the Bloom Living Podcast. I am your host, Thomas Shooter. Today, joining me is thought leader Lee Jenkins. His most recent book, How to Create a Perfect School. Lee's going to talk to us about what education can look like, how we can shift our education system so that the same joy of learning that our kids brought with them into kindergarten can be alive for them throughout all of their schooling. He talks about parents' number one education job is to keep that love of learning alive in their children. Learning is the goal. The method for learning is secondary. And homework is one example where the two are confused. In this day and age where homeschooling has become the norm and where we don't know what school is going to look like down the road, it would be nice to know that we have a basis and understanding of how to keep learning and education alive and healthy for our children, not only as homeschoolers, but when they go back to school, when they enter back into the system. Please, welcome to the show with me, Lee Jenkins. Thank you. It is exciting to be here. Yeah. Here, we made it. We made it. Yeah, I think we met in New York. We uh, did in last... October. Yes. Wow, that seems like that seems like eight billion years ago, doesn't it? It does. And and then they did the same event again, but it was uh, virtual. I'm sure glad I didn't have a virtual expense experience. I'm glad I got to meet you in person. Yeah, yeah. It's always you know I prefer the let's you know. Do it. Although I don't even know if we can handshake anymore. I don't know what all the rules are going to look like <laughs> as we uh, unfold from this. And and I think it's perfect timing to have you on here because of your depth of knowledge, uh, your leadership, thought leadership in the world of education. And uh, I, I'm just going to have a little preamble here. I know yesterday we had you know somebody we know reached out to us that's that's down in one of the U.S. states, down in California. And they're saying that they don't even know what's going to happen with school. And so I'm curious, before we dive into the stuff around your book and what you previously knew about the education system, how has that now shifted or what has risen to the top of importance in your mind? You know, it really hasn't uh, shifted. Okay. The, uh, the most important thing is that kids start school with this incredible desire to learn. And we gradually lose that. So it's the same, whatever we do with whatever happens, whether schools are open or whether their parents have choices and some are there and some aren't there, um, it's still the same. We, they have to maintain that love of learning because that's what propels them on all the way through. Right. 
Yeah. And, you know, and when you say that the love of learning, uh, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about this, about excitement and energy. I know that when, you know, I was not a very good student, I wanted to play drums and be in a rock band. That's really all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So everything about school was the, like the antithesis of that. It was like, this is the, it was the absolute anti what I wanted to do. So with the idea of love of learning, what are things that you see in our current system and our current way of doing school that just seems to rip that out of kids? Okay. Well, there's uh, three things I can share with you. One is we use data for discouragement instead of using data for encouragement. I mean, I could put it on the screen and show you, but it just imagine a, a, a huge bulletin board a teacher made and it's designed like a football field. And she spent a lot of time making a really nice helmet for every student in the class. And she falsely thought that she's going to motivate them because all the kids are going to want to do well and move their helmet towards the goal line. Well, it works for all the, all but about five of the kids. So 20 of the kids are moving their helmet and five are still not to the one yard line yet. So every time those five kids walk in the classroom, they see a big number that says, I'm a loser. It happens over and over and over. I was in Wyoming speaking. I got to speak to a live audience uh, earlier this month. And teacher and a principal came up and said, yeah, that happens in my middle school with the keyboarding skills. There's a chart there and how many words per minute you can type. Then we see who the winners and the losers are. And so we need to use data for encouragement, not data for discouragement. Another a second one is that starting out in first grade with spelling, kids can get really good grades by cramming on Thursday night, answering the questions correctly on Friday, and forgetting all the information on Saturday. And there's a whole lot of kids who are unwilling to play that game. They realize it's not real learning, it's just to get the grade. And we, it's cram and forget. But there's just a lot that aren't willing, they see it. This is not real learning and they won't play the game. So that's another reason they lose out. They see it as not worthwhile. I would, I would say that, um, well, me, as a, a student when I was in high school, I was a middle-class dropout. In other words, my body was still there because I was going to college. But I, was, I, would, I didn't want to play that game. Mm. There, then if you come from a poverty background, you're not only do you, you drop out, but you drop your body drops out too. And then it harms you for a, a long time. But part of it is that, that game, that cram, forget a game. And they learn it in about five weeks of um, first grade. It's a, a, a grandmother had her a granddaughter for the weekend. So on Friday afternoon, uh, this little girl's dropped off at grandma's house. She's been in first grade for five weeks. And grandma's going through the backpack. And she, uh, she says, oh, honey, here's a spelling test. Good job, sweetheart. You only missed two words. Let's work on those two words. And the first grader said, after five weeks in first grade, um, no, grandma, I don't need those words anymore. We're done with them. You're, you're from Canada, so I need to tell you a Canadian story. Um, when you come into Canada and you're sitting on the plane on the way there, and they give you this little paper to fill out, and you check whether it's for business or whether tourist. Well, I checked business because I was going to give a speech to educators. And so when you go in then to, to immigration and customs, they say, hmm, business, you need to go over this little room over here. And then they ask you other questions. Well, the first time I wasn't that prepared and I gave too many details. And it, it was not going well. It just it, it did not go well. And so wasted a half an hour, 40 minutes, and finally they kind of think they gave up. They understand what I was saying, and they just let me go. So next time coming in to speak in Canada, then I got to do better. So they said, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to give a presentation to teachers and principals. Well, what are you going to tell them? I'm going to tell them how we make cramming impossible. You just have to learn. They said, right on. This is what we need. Come on in. Okay. (laughs) So you gave less less info. Yes. And, and they didn't even ask how you're going to do that. They just said, oh, we need that. Come on in. I, three or four times I've given that same answer 
at customs and come into Canada and they always say the same thing. We need that. Come on in. So that's another reason why kids lose interest. It's it's just a, just a game. And then um, I've asked teachers and and others in the audience to say, okay, write down, um, and give with a couple of two or three people around you and say, well, how many times a day do the kids in your school, how many times a day are they in, uh, bribed or incentivized to do something? And the most common number I get is five. A lot of times it's higher, but five. So I said, okay, multiply five times the number of days in a school year, 180 or so. Then multiply that by 13 years from kindergarten through 12th grade. You get over 10,000 little bribes. So I said, well, if the bribes were working, you and I wouldn't be in this workshop. We wouldn't need it. Because we, we just give them, we put, we just give them more stuff and well, it's not working. Right. Well, it also sounds like the, the kids are learning that bribery is how you function in society, that they're, they're actually learning skills that yes. maybe we, that maybe we don't want to emphasize that you know absolutely that how to how to get what you want without really doing anything how yes. to bribe your way through something how to manipulate the system etc yes. etc and and so for each of these things i've mentioned to you i i teach how to use data for encouragement how do we make cramming impossible and what do we replace the bribes and incentives with we replace them with with thank yous and celebrations Right. It's a genuine thank you. So in, in the system I teach, instead of when kids get a paperback that's been scored by the teacher, they don't think, how many did I miss? What they think is, did I do better than ever before? Because it's so exciting to be able to tell your friends, I did the best I've ever done. Mm. They're thrilled. And then, and then um, the, and the most powerful data tool we have is addition. We have all these statistics out there and some are good and some are kind of crazy, but addition is the most powerful. If we go to an athletic event, the scoreboard, all it is is addition. You just add up the contribution of all these different players and you get a total, put it up on the scoreboard. Well, we do that in the classroom. We add up the total uh, items correct from all the students in the room when we add it up and it's up on, that's what's up on the wall. We don't put things up there on individual kids to embarrass them. We put up there how the whole class is doing. Right. And then, and then there's such joy from, I did better than I've ever done before, or I helped the class have its all-time best record. It was me. If it hadn't been for me, the class wouldn't have had their best, their all-time best. Right. I did it. And they're yeah. learning, they're learning contribution, unity, oneness, uh, you know, collaborating, uh, yes. you know, I do want to go back to something though, the, the data, the data piece. So, so talk to me a little bit about like that. Like what is, what is it that is that the way something is being presented that in the world of data that just, you know, crushes a kid? Like, is it, is it just that it's like information overload or is it that there's no association to what this actually means for them? It, it actually is used to dis, to, to discourage the kids who most need encouragement. The foreword of my book that we'll mention earlier was written by Jack Canfield, who did the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. And he said, when I was in elementary school, my parents sent me to a military school. And after every test, they put the name of the student with the top score on the, on the, up on the wall and the score, and then the second place and a score, third place and a score, all the way down to the last place, the name and a score. He said, it may have, discouraged, it may have encouraged the top couple students, maybe the top three, but for the rest of us, it didn't do it. It didn't encourage us at all. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, we have, we don't do it exactly that way now, but we have, but it's the same thing. The kids are discouraged. They know, uh, I'm not a good student. I give up mm-hmm. instead of no matter where you are, you can do better than you've done before. And then you can do better again and you can do better again. Uh, John Maxwell has a quotation. I love that says, I'm only in competition with my former self. Well, but you can't get kids to believe that if it's a competition in the classroom. But if the classroom is set up so that everybody is honored for doing better than they've ever done before, then the kids internalize that. 
yeah, I'm in competition with my former self. Yeah, because I've definitely heard that at times from my own kids and from some of their friends, you know, I can't learn or, you know, I'm dumb, you know, like I don't get it. And then that just reinforces that, right? That that just becomes the perpetual story in the head. Yes, yes. Um, I've walked in the classrooms in October and I've said, is there anybody in this room who hasn't had a personal best yet? No hands go up. They've all had at least one personal best. And, and uh, we do this uh, 28 times a year. So, um, so out of that 28 times, the typical kid has their personal best seven to 12 times where they are honored for doing better than they've ever done before. That probably the biggest fans of my work are in special education where they've got the kids that are struggling the most. And those kids are honored along with everybody else because they can do better than they've done before. Right. Just like everybody can. Yeah. Yes. So, so Lee, it sounds like what you're really, what you're really telling me here is that, uh, and I, and I want to differentiate something, but it sounds like what you're really telling me here is that the, the road to victory in education is by honoring wherever somebody is at. And whenever they improve on where they're at, we honor them and we That's show correct. them, we show them joy and celebration for, for, you know, even if it's one mark better than before, it's an improvement and let's celebrate that. And for just, and I want to differentiate because, you know, in sport now, when I think of when my when my daughters were playing ice hockey, as we do up here in Canada, uh, <laughs> there you know we would go to these tournaments, and there would be no winner, and everybody would get a participation ribbon. And there's you know, and I don't know if in the world of sport if that's healthy or not healthy that everybody just gets a participation ribbon instead of honoring people that excel at or instead of picking a best team. I don't know where that should shift or if there is a time where we you know should transition to where being recognized for your particular gift is important. I would say that athletics and games is a good place to learn how to be a good winner and how to be a good loser. I would say that's a good place. Okay. Right. And, and so when parents, when you go to a hockey game to watch and there's just two teams out there, uh, you know, one's going to win and one's going to lose, you know, that walking in. Okay. But when, but when you send your kids to school, you don't think there's a 50, 50 chance my kid's going to be a loser learner. And the 50% chance my kid's going to be uh, a winner learner. No, the parents expect all their kids to be winners, in other words, to learn. So I would say um, competition, like I talked about with Jack Canfield, that competition, that's wrong for academics. We don't, we don't need that in schools, but we do for games and sports. That's what it is. It's a game. Right. So in your mind there, and I like the way you frame that. So in your mind, there needs to be a distinction. You know, I'm sending my kid to school to learn and we want them to be celebrated through every step of their learning process so that they can, you know, enrich their lives versus make it a competition. Whereas when you enter the, you know, the sports arena, it is set up as a competition. Yes, it is. And it's healthy. It's, we love it. It's a competition. There's, there's, it's, it's nothing wrong with it. Right. But school's not a game. Yeah. You know, and I know from my own experience is, uh, is that I actually became a better learner when I was older. And yes. my assumption is, is that when I focused on the things, I guess this would be, maybe this is it for everybody. Cause even when I was playing, when it, when I was a musician, I was a student of being a musician. Uh, so whenever I'm excited about something and I want to learn it, I will learn it. Yes. So let me connect the, the drums and your, your desire to regular school learning. <clears throat> I learned this from a history teacher in West Virginia. But here's what he said. Every time he gave an assignment, he said, here's what I want you to learn. I want you to prove to me you learned this. And he spelled it out. This is what you're proved to me you're going to learn. Here's three ways you can prove to me you've learned it. And he gives them three ways. But then he says, if you've got another idea on how you can prove to me you learned it, come talk to me. 
Okay. So I had a teacher say to me recently, uh, when I was in high school, all I cared about was theater. If I had been given that choice from my, by my teachers, every assignment, I would have worked my hardest to figure out how to connect theater to what the teacher was teaching. And I would prove through my theater interest that I learned it. So it's not, an, it should not be an either or. It shouldn't be, well, I care about drums, but the school doesn't care about it, so therefore it doesn't count. We, we can connect it. We can connect their interests. And, and the history teacher who told me this said that he had a student who was just so into art. So almost every assignment in history for the whole year, she proved that she learned the history through political cartoons. Hmm. Think how much more time she spent on political cartoon than she would have spent just doing handing it in to say I learned it. Yeah. Right, but the the enjoyment for that, like I, I see it, like it propels the learning because you're putting your own stamp on it. You're putting yes. your own creativity into yes. the fire, right? Yes. So whether we're online or whether in person, that part's the same, mm. right? It hasn't changed. Right. So now let's let's shift this a little because I have a feeling, you know, with COVID, there was a lot of uh, homeschool teachers that were suddenly born. Yes. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly we had parents that were teaching that, you know, never ever considered that they would ever need to do this or even want to do this. And so how can we, how can we help those parents that are, because I'm sure that some of them are going to remain in this, in this world now of, of learning at home. How can we help them to find the joy in teaching their kids? Okay. The, and and you, I need to share with you, when I'm working with a group of teachers, and this will be the same for if they're the teachers, the mom and dad at home, or whether the teachers from the school, what we give the kids the first week of school is a list of what they're going to learn for the year. <clears throat> the whole year. One, two, three, four, five, we spell it out. And the kids um, like that. They like knowing where we're going. The teacher can say, well, I gave you a list of 100 concepts I'm going to teach you this year. We're on number 32 today. So the parents should do the same. Like we, talk, we mentioned spelling earlier. When, when um, I work with teachers and they say we want to try to improve our spelling, okay, what are the spelling words for the year? Grade one, they write down about 150 of them. Here they are, one, two, three, four, five. Okay. Now, I mentioned we take out cramming. So on Friday, when it's time for that Friday test in spelling, they know they're going to get 12 words on their spelling test in first grade, but they don't know which 12 are coming. They come out of a bucket at random right in front of the teacher. So we always assess their long-term memory to know what they really know not their short-term memory to know which parents made them sit down and learn it on Thursday night. So, so, so for if you're the mom and, mom and dad at home, whatever the subject is, write down what you want them to know at the end of the year. And I would say, make sure it's um, essential. Don't put trivia on the list. Now in the States, uh, it's very common for uh, teachers to ask kids to memorize states and capitals. Well, from my perspective, that's trivia. Uh, I've worked a lot in Nebraska. And if you ask most kids in the United States, uh, what's the capital of Nebraska? They'll tell you it's Lincoln. And then if you say, well, where is Nebraska? You say, I don't know. <laughs> okay? In other words, we focus on the trivia. Isn't that the home of the corn huskers? Right, right. Okay. But where's that? Give them a blank map of the United States, okay? Um, and they don't know, okay? And, and by the way, the Canadians know our states better than we know their, the Canadians know our 50 states better than we know the 13 provinces and territories in Canada, right? It's true, but it nevertheless. Um, so what would, you, what would you do? You'd say, well, if you wanna know the capital of New Hampshire, look it up. But 
you shouldn't have to look up where it is. You should know. Yeah. Right. Uh, I can give you just some trivia. Recently, I, I don't know how they, why they lined it up all in, in order, but we went, my wife and I went out to lunch uh, one a winter a couple of years ago, and there were four cars in a row, all lined up in a row, and there was British Columbia, there was Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba license plates, all four in a row. <laughs> I don't know if they parked in a row or purpose or not, but that's that's Arizona where I live in the winter. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that would be the uh, the snowbirds, right? As they're yeah, as is. they're fondly known. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that's great. So. So for parents, if I was to summarize this, one of the things they could do is to uh, set out a plan of here's what we're going to, here's what we're attempting to tackle over the course of this semester or the next month or the next two months. And yeah, I and, would put it for the whole year. I, okay. My advice would be the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. You can divide it and say, this is what we're going to do the first quarter, the second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, but here's the list for the year. Yes. Right. Right. And now I'm curious about this. What about, uh, what about the parent, if you're going to homeschool working on, you know, when, when we, we homeschooled our kids for a number, when I say we, I really mean Leslie homeschooled our kids for a number of years. Mm -hmm. One of the goals was to always do things that they enjoyed, but then interject the lesson into what they enjoyed doing. Yes. Yes, of course. Right. So and, how, and how could somebody do that or begin to learn to do that? Like, what are they, what are they going to be looking for in order to start really magnifying that for their kids? Like, you know, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. Where do they start in terms of developing a program that would benefit the child with their interests? Well, I can give you the brainstorming tool. Take a sheet of paper and in the middle of that paper, draw a circle and write down, write in that circle, this, their child's interest, a major interest, okay? And then from that circle, draw lines out to the edge of the paper. So you're creating a bunch of spaces around it. And then label those spaces. This is, this is uh, arithmetic, this is geometry, this is history, this is, this is geography, this is science, okay? And label each of the art, from all, the all the subjects all around in each of those spaces that you've made by from that circle in the beginning and then a line out to the edge. Okay. And then it's all there. It's all there. No matter what they put, whatever their interest is in the middle, then you will be able to make a connection. If you did that with drums and then you could make a connection to every subject there is to be taught. Now teachers can't do that with a class of 25 to 30 kids. But they can uh, do that with uh, uh, some of the kids that most need that assistance. And when my boys were in uh, kindergarten, first, second grade, uh, one of the activities that the teacher uh, did for them, uh, not every day, but out of, 100, out of 180 school days, maybe 60 to 80 of them, she'd say to each kid individually, what word do you want to learn to read today? Well, there's only 26 letters, okay, and a few more sounds beyond that. So no matter what words the kids ask for, all the phonics you want them to know is built into those words. Right. So you can, you do want to keep their interest in there. And, and it's going to be easier for the homeschool parent to do that than for a teacher with multiple classes. Right. However, when I, what I shared from the high school history teacher, the teacher's not trying to make the connections. The students are making. Here's three ways you can prove to me you learned it, but if you got another idea, come talk to me. Right. Right. So we actually encourage them to think outside the box. Yes. Encourage them to bring their imagination, their skill set, their desire, what, they, what interests them into the program. Yes. And by the way, there were six teachers that I was working with that were doing that, had the practice of asking first graders, what word do you want to learn to read today? And so 60 to 80 words per kid, 180 kids, we got all the words and we classified it. Their number one interest, nothing comes close to their interest and in is science. Hmm. That was their number one interest. And then that was about 40, well, let's say close to 50% of the words. Then 25% then of the words approximately 
was what we called social studies. It was names of friends, holiday words, and places they visited. And then half again at about 12% was fantasy. Mm. And the adults think the kids' number one interest is fantasy. It's not. Science is four times more interesting to them than fantasy. And then there were just various sundry things, you know, just a, a collection sure. of things. Well, yeah. science can be biology. It can be going to the ocean and looking at right. living creatures on the ocean. It could be any any of the plants. It could be a flower. That's, you know, yes. there's, your, there's your science, right? So that makes oh, sense. Yeah. 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 And so I want to go back to this. Uh, so when you're building out this pie chart of interest, I would imagine that one of the great things to do would be to include the kid. Yes. Of course. Yeah. Right. Like, like, yeah. let's help, sit down. help me think through this. Yes. Yeah. Let's let's design your school year. Yes. Right. Like let's let's be uh, let, let's do this together. It's a it's it's for your benefit and you know my benefit as well, so that it's easy to do. Yes. It's going to be a struggle and include the child and then that interest and I can totally see like when when you said drums for example. Well, first of all, math is huge. Yes. In, in rhythm, right? The science of making drums easily could you know you could go there the history of drums in civilization like yes. all of a sudden i could see how taking that one core piece and branching out from there would feed so many things geometry all the drums are different sizes like it's that's so have you been to phoenix recently i have not when you come there is the uh music instrument museum they have, they have music instruments from all over the world. You would love it. Mm -hmm. And then one of the, some trivia, but one of the interesting things, they hired two entomologists because these are real instruments that come from around the world, most of them wouldn't. And they found insects buried into these instruments. So they have two people that are classifying all the insects that come from all these instruments. From, but when you go, they give you headsets that are Bluetooth enabled. And so when you walk up next to the to the big display of that instrument, and then you hear the songs. Then you walk away, it's silent, and you go to the next one and stand next to it, you hear it. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, one of the other things I want to touch on is, uh, and this just came to me, is, is a memory, is that what something I noticed with my own kids was their love of history. Mm -hmm. Their love to know where we came from. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, how much have you found in, in the world of education where you can tie things back to our history? Do kids get excited? They do. But it's, it's again about them feeling successful in it. We don't destroy that. They think they come in naturally interested, but we can destroy it. Right. So on my website, which is um, lbellj.com, <clears throat> the letter L, the word bell, j.com, the first video that's there is from a seventh grade history class and Alan Culp. Um, it's just, um, it's, it's an amazing classroom. Now we, they cut it down to three minutes. We filmed for a day and it's cut down to three minutes, but it's a seventh grade history class. They're just eager to, to, to prove that they've learned more history. They, it just, it, 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 it keeps that love that they came in with. Yes. Right. Yeah, I, well, I get a sense. I know even for me, I, you know, knowing where we came from and knowing how we've gotten to this place that we are is uh, is something that you know even inspires me still today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few years ago, we took our kids uh, when we were homeschooling. We took them to Europe, and we they uh, we asked them what did they want to do, and they uh, they wanted to go to the Anne Frank Museum uh -huh. because my my wife had read. Uh, the Anne Frank story to them. Sure. And, and so they were just captivated by that. And we ended up turning it into sort of a history of the world wars and that, you know, that area of the sure. world and what happened and how it, you know, went around the globe. And the thing is, is that I don't think it ever felt like school to them. Of course not. Of course not. You know, we were just in it talking yeah. about this stuff. So uh, my work has been greatly influenced by W. Edwards Deming, um, who lived from 1900 to 1993, best known for having taken Japanese management to Japan under Douglas MacArthur in the 50s and then be on his own after that. 
But he said that um, 95, 96% of our problems in any organization, whether it's government, education, or business, are caused by the system. Hmm. So since we know the longer kids are in school, the more they become discouraged, not all, but two thirds of them, it's not the teachers writing in their lesson plans who they want to discourage. It's the system that, that they inherited that we're not analyzing. And it's grad, and so you have to think about, well, what could we do? What are we doing in schools that's causing this despair? Uh, John Hattie's an Australian that I've learned a lot from, and he gave us the triplet skill, will, and thrill. They're really good to, for everybody to keep in mind when think about education. Now we know schools are in charge, responsible for imparting skill. Mm -hmm. The issue is that the uh, kids control the will. They're going to control how, how the effort, how much they work, right? Yeah. And so if they get no thrill from learning the skill, they lose their will. And, and so <clears throat> everything they do, homeschool or in school, if we can keep the, 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 <clears throat> the will high, they can learn. Right. And if we don't, and when people hear the word thrill, they think, well, the kids just want parties. No, they don't. The thrill comes from knowing more than I've ever known before. You didn't bribe your kids at Anne Frank House. You didn't do any of those things that schools do. It was, they were just thrilled learning. And when kids get the thrill of learning, they keep their will. And then the skills come as a side effect of that. Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, just what, the way you're sharing this just brings up so many memories for me of, you know, my kids are teenagers now, but when they were little of, of me wanting to tell them stories of me, you know, them wanting me to, to indulge on ideas and make up stories, whatever it was. And if you could, if you could take that excitement and that energy that they have and turn it into a learning without them even knowing it's learning. Yes. That's, that's really the goal that you're talking about, isn't it? That's really what, what we want to try to do. Mm -hmm. If we replace the things that damage that joy, replace things that enhance that joy, and the kids are as excited in high school for learning as they once were in kindergarten, mm. nothing will hold us back. Nothing. Right. Right. And I'm curious, so where does something like Waldorf education fit in this model? Because they have a very distinct process that seems to be much more in line with how you're explaining things. Is that accurate? I'm not the one to ask. I've read some things on Waldorf, but I, I'm not um, is knowledgeable, knowledgeable enough to answer that question. Okay. What I've heard matches what you're saying, but I don't know that. Okay. Well, thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to. I just want to jump to your book now. So, how to create a perfect school? Is there anything in there that uh, I know we've touched on a lot of different things? What else is somebody going to be able to take away from diving into your book and really, you know, taking some ideas out of there to begin to create this perfect school? Okay. First of all, let me tell you where the title came from. Um, it comes from really the books I've read on Toyota, that they start their planning with what would perfect be. Then they say, where are we now? And then, and then their planning is, to, is to, to work in that space between where they are now and what perfect would be. They say, we'll never be perfect. But if we don't know what it is, we're certainly not gonna get closer. So the book, How to Create a Perfect School, starts with what would a perfect school be? And we've already talked on it that, that, the, that the, it, the, the joy of learning that kids bring with them to kindergarten is maintained for the 12 more years. That would be a perfect school. So then, then we talk about, well, what, it, what is in that joy, that intrinsic motivation that kids come with? Mm. And it's actually a, a combination of will and thrill. So we measure that. They tell us how, how hard they're working and they tell us how much they're enjoying it. So we're able to know along the way how we're doing on maintaining that will and thrill. That's the first part. What is perfect? How do we measure it? How can we find out for sure? Okay. The second part of the book is what we've already talked about. What is it we are doing 
that's discouraging kids unintentionally. Mm, right. Um, in my speech to Wyoming uh, earlier this month, I talked about that we had we needed to get a new garage door opener, and <clears throat> and and so we got a new garage door opener, and unbeknownst to us the frequency was the same as our neighbors. So every time we left the house, our garage, our neighbor's garage door went up. And they were very frustrated, okay? How, but they said, we left to go out to eat and we're sure the garage door was down and came back and it was open. And couldn't figure it out. Well, what I said was it was unintentional. Nobody intended to do that because somebody could have stolen things or broken in the house, you know, who knows? It was unintentional. And I'd like to say that about the second part of the book, what are schools doing that are causing kids to lose that enthusiasm for learning? It's unintentional. Okay. The third part is, what do we replace those activities with? We've talked about that. What do you replace data for discouragement with? How do you make data for encouragement? And one of the chapter titles in that third part is, the title of the chapter is, If You Behave After Lunch, I'll Let You Have Another Quiz. Well, why would that be? Well, the data's for joy. They want more quizzes, right? And, but, but most, when have you ever heard of a kid asking for more quizzes? They don't, because it's not a joyful experience. So actually, and, and the teacher had, the, the classroom I was in, she had great control of the kids. She knew they were going to behave after lunch. <laughs> it was not a bribe in that sense. It was a, a smart mouth way of saying, yes, you can have another quiz after lunch. Right. So, so, use, so each of those things that are causing harm, we, we replace them. Unfortunately, in the field of education, there's some very talented people that describe the problems, but no solutions. And there's another group of people that describe solutions, but they don't connect them to the problems. And what we need, people need in education is the problem and, and the solutions. You know, it doesn't mean it's the only solution, but a solution. Okay? Right. And then the fourth part of the book is called Polishing Perfect. And it's ideas for better instruction. And the idea I shared with you from the history teacher in West Virginia, here's three ways to learn it. If you've got another idea, come talk to me. That's in the fourth part. There are five chapters in there specifically designed for parents. And the rest of them are 20 chapters are designed for educators. Right. Right. Thank you. You know, it sounds to me like uh, a, lot, a lot of the work is to just recreate a different order, an order, uh, you know, reorder how school is being done. Yes, it does do that. Right. It does do that. Yeah. In, in fact, to connect it to the virus, a school superintendent where I've been working quite a bit, where every teacher from pre-K through grade 12 gave the kids the list of what they're going to learn for the year. Yeah. When they, all of a sudden when schools were shut down, uh, Julie Otero is the superintendent. She said, our teachers had so much easier time than the teachers in the surrounding communities because the kids all had the list. They knew how far they'd gone so far. Now they're at home and they just, just finished it. Just kept on going. Right. They weren't struck. They weren't climbing. What do I do now? What do I do? No, they already knew. Kids already knew. So yeah. that's, you know, you just brought up something that's like the idea of so many kids, people going to college or university without really knowing what they want to do. Yes. Like, is that, is that systemic of the way school is done in your opinion? Is that how that happens? I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, the, you know, it might be just, I haven't thought about this before, but, but it might be that the, the college counselors need to find out what the kids really, really interested in before they ask, what do you want to major in? Right. But maybe, so I guess where my question comes from is maybe because the first 12 years we've never focused on a child's interest. We've all yeah. been, We've no. almost pushed that out the door to yes. like, it doesn't matter that by the time they get faced with that, they don't even know what they're interested in anymore because that, you know, that data that you've talked about has driven out of them any idea of who or what they want to be. Yes, that's true. 
And if they do have a major interest, it's from outside school. Right. Or sometimes a favorite teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because it's um, from in the uh, book, it shows a graph of, of what percent of the kids love school at each grade level. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You've seen, you've seen that, Thomas. Yeah. It's worse and worse. But it doesn't get to zero. You know, there's still some kids that hang on and keep that level of learning they once had in kindergarten. And, and so those kids may know what it is they want to major in when in college. Yeah. That, that, that minority of them. Yeah. 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 Wow. Fascinating. Lee, is there, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is vital? Um, no, I just, I mentioned two things. I'd like people to visit my website. There's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, it's lbellj.com. There's so much there for people to look at. If they go under the free resources, there's lists that teachers have put together from various different subjects of what they want their kids to learn. Uh, you don't ever clone somebody's exact list, but when you start with what somebody else has done, you can much less time to fix it the way you want it. Yeah. So there's, there's a, just a, a lot of things there. Um, so with, with the book and what's on the website, People are set to, whether it's homeschool or in the classroom, to really change how school is, how it's focused. It's, 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 not, it's not better teaching I'm talking about. It's better learning. Right. It's because the system is supporting the learning. Yeah. We evaluate teachers on their teaching lesson, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not what's going to really make the big impact. And we want yeah. good teachers. I'm not saying we don't. But good teaching by itself won't solve our problem. Yeah. You know, uh, for me and, you know, I don't know that I'm right or wrong on this and it doesn't matter, but what, what's coming up for me and what I'm seeing as a father is that it's not about me. It's not about the school. It's about the kids. And if right. you actually focus the attention on the kids instead of what my you know, here's what I want them to know. But mm -hmm. if you actually take a step back and start saying, well, what are the kids interested in? And then how can we, how can we, you know, envelope into that mm -hmm. stuff that we kind of think they need to know, like they need to have some certain skills. They need to have they some do. basics. They need to know how to read, you know, in order to really propel their life forward. So how can we take what they're interested in and put that stuff into it versus the other way around of we're going to cram this into you and we're not going to make it interesting at all. Yeah. So, I mean, the teacher that had the, um, the teacher, the important word book, what word do you want to learn to read? Same idea. Every kid had a, 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 a personal math book. It was a blank paper and a cover. And it said my personal math book by in their name. And so one of the assignments was, um, and I've got photographs of the work, but a teacher said, go get the centimeter tape, measure 10 things in the room and write down how, how long they are. Well, they're connecting their interest, but they're learning to measure with the centimeter tape. It's, it's, um, there was a place in the room with, um, uh, you take, it was cardboard about the size of a computer screen with a notch on each end and yarn wrapped around it. And, and then, so when the kids had that assignment, what do you, what are you interested in how big something is? And a kid said, I'm interested in Python. We'll find out how long the longest Python is in the world. And the kid found out it was 30 feet long. So there's a bucket of rulers and the kid got 30 rulers and put them in a line <laughs> across the room and then got yarn and laid it out that length and cut it off at that length, wrapped it on that cardboard Okay, and wrote on it Python, 30 feet, and then wrote down how many meters it was, nine meters and you know, on there also. So it's not like it's their interest versus what we would, I mean, the teacher wanted them to know how to measure in centimeters and inches and feet and yards and meters before the year was over. But you can connect that to what they want to measure. Yeah. What does it matter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well said. All right, so the website is lbellj.com? Yes, lbellj.com. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That'll be in our show notes for people to easily uh, link to. And then are you on social media at all, sir? 
Yes, I'm on uh, 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 Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And just recently opened up a Facebook um, uh, business, business for business as opposed to personal. Right. So I'm on there, all three, and I do post on all three of them. And then they're also on my website. If they want to be on my email list, they can. They'll get some emails from time to time that may be helpful to go along with what we're talking about. And it also gives them access to a ton more uh, 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 PDFs. One is uh, on just reading ideas I mentioned yeah. and the math and the measuring. There's a, a deck of 250 pictures of classrooms implementing those kinds of ideas. And that's, but when they sign up for my email list, immediately they get a, a, a list that comes to them with the links to all these PDFs that they might be interested in. Oh, fantastic. Lee, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Thomas. This has been a, a joy. I've appreciated it. Hope this is um, helpful to you and helpful to your audience. Yeah, I think uh, with where we are in the world now with schooling and how that's uh, shaping out to be, I think any tools we can give parents and and kids and students to uh, look at a whole new approach to education, I think uh, I think is very valuable. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Thomas. A huge shout out to today's guest and to you, our listeners, for joining us here today on the Bloom Living Podcast. If you have any comments or questions or ideas for shows, things that you want to dive into, please send us an email to media at bloomstrategies.com. That's media at bloomstrategies.com. If you're so inclined, you can give us a thumbs up or share the episode on social media. We'd certainly appreciate that. And until next time, be well, stay safe, and have an amazing day.